102.5 FM, KXSFLP, San Francisco, and KXSF.FM. You're tuned in to Spark, informing minds, inspiring ideas, igniting innovation. Let the conversation sink into your soul. This is Kelly Marlowe, host of Spark. What if your gut health determined your mental, physical, and future well-being? Would you optimize the strands of gut bacteria that will protect you from diseases and brain deterioration? Today, I talk with Dr. Peter Swan, a leading expert on the gut microbiome. He will share how we can boost our gut health that will prevent the degeneration of our brain and body. Thank you for joining me on Spark today, Dr. Swan. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Can you first start by explaining what microbiome is, basically what's going on in our gut? Yeah, microbiome is the, the overarching term for the bacteria that live in and on you. Technically, it also includes skin bacteria, but when most people are talking about the microbiome, they're usually talking about the gut, bacteria that start at the mouth and then end at the other end. I hear that microbiome and the immunity of adults are under the influence of our early childhood factors, such as diet or pets, hygiene, or childhood illnesses. Let's say we were on antibiotics for some kind of infection that affects it. Yeah, correct. The easiest way to think about this is think about when a baby's born. Baby's born, comes out, passes through mom's vagina, gets colonized with some bacteria coming out in the process, and then begins to drink breast milk. Breast milk, one-third of the calories, fully one-third of the calories of breast milk are human milk oligosaccharides. That is, they're molecules that the baby literally cannot digest. They're only feeding the bacteria that are inside the baby that the baby got inoculated with as he was born. Give you an idea just how important this really is. Mom produces about a third of her calories in breast milk purely for feeding the bacteria. Those bacteria then interact with our developing immune systems and help and sort of a regulatory process, that is, making sure the immune system is active when it's supposed to be active, i.e. infection, but not active when it's not supposed to be, like autoimmune disease. Then two questions. What about the babies that are born out of C-section and the babies that don't drink breast milk? What happens then? Two things. First, it's an area of active research. There clearly is a microbiome difference in the early years between babies that are breastfed and babies that are bottle-fed, as well as babies born by C-section and and babies born naturally. So there are definitely some differences there. Over the course of about two years, as the baby goes through that that breast milk phase and then begins to weed to solid foods, a lot of those differences begin to balance out. By the time you get to late childhood or early adulthood, the microbiome is relatively the same in all populations, regardless of how they were born. Okay, that's good to know, because I had read that it could affect you later as an adult, depending on what happened in your childhood days. Most of the experts, me included, believe that the bacteria that we have inside us have all the necessary genes to help us be healthy. There may be different names. If I measure your microbiome and my microbiome, we might have different names, different species. But if you look at the genetics of those species, Most of the experts think that the genes necessary to encode for the enzymes and other proteins necessary for health are there in everybody. Therefore, you should be able to feed those bacteria, assuming you've got the right components in your diet, 
and either maintain health or reestablish health, depending on the person. There are a lot of young people, especially teenagers, who are on antibiotics. What happens then? And then can the effects of what it does, the microbiome, can that be reversed after they decide to come off of the antibiotics? Antibiotics definitely disturb the microbiome. That is, there's, there's a big change because antibiotics, even so-called narrow-spectrum antibiotics, kill a lot of different kinds of bacteria. And most of our antibiotics today are wide-spectrum, so they, they're designed to kill a whole swath. If you do microbiome studies on those populations before they got the antibiotics, while they're on the antibiotics, immediately after, there's definitely a big shift during the time they're on antibiotics. Most of the studies show that over the course of about six months after the antibiotics, assuming your diet is continuing the same, you repopulate with much the same bugs, although there is a hint in the literature that maybe you lose a little bit of diversity. So maybe you're losing a few bugs along the way. But I heard that the alteration of your gut microbiome can cause or contribute to diseases. What's happening then? The microbiome is intimately involved in many processes. We started at the beginning of the session with uh, the immune system. So needless to say, the immune system is involved in all kinds of autoimmune diseases, things like rheumatoid arthritis, Rider syndrome, even some types of asthma. And because the microbiome has a regulatory function there, if the microbiome is functioning appropriately, then you won't get those kinds of conditions. If the microbiome is not functioning appropriately, then your immune system may do things that it's not supposed to do, like attack other areas. Other examples that I have direct experience with are the conditions of heartburn and constipation. In heartburn in particular, we know that there's a change in bacteria in the esophagus, and that causes inflammation. And we also know that if you change that bacterial component so that there's not so much inflammatory bacteria, that heartburn improves. What about with constipation, though? Because I hear that that's a very common issue that people experience. Yeah, constipation super common, often accompanied with irritable bowel-type symptoms, so rumbly, dirtly, slight abdominal pain, crampy, and with constipation. There's evidence that in those people, the microbiome has been altered. It's got different, different bugs than it should have. If you feed the competition, that is, you feed the good guys, they grow, they become more robust, and then producing more of the products that they're supposed to produce, and the microbiome changes, the constipation goes away. I know someone was going through that. I don't think anyone's ever said to her to treat your gut, though. They'll give her, I can, to improve the movement of her bowels rather than say, hey, let's see what we can do about your gut and improve your microbiome in order to get relief or to solve this issue of constipation. It seems like that's a case I've heard of for many people when they go through that. Yeah, and the reason we don't hear about it too much or that doctors don't necessarily mention all that much is what we're talking about is cutting-edge science. Some of this is very well understood, but has not made it into the exam room when I'm seeing a patient. That's the bad news. That is, people aren't hearing about it as often as they should. The good news is the science is advancing rapidly, and especially the treatment side. That is, the ability to know what kind of prebiotic you need to feed bugs in order for them to grow and thrive and help you be healthy. The science is growing day by day. Although you're not hearing a lot about it yet, I predict within the next five years you're going to hear a ton. Right now, we're kind of seeing the beginning of gut science to help heal the body in different ways. Exactly. The key is to be able to increase populations of bacteria that are helpful. 
We've been trying for about 20 years to do that with probiotics, that is bacteria, live bacteria that are supposed to be healthy. But the science is now very clear that taking oral probiotics does not increase the numbers of bacteria on an ongoing basis in anybody. The science is starting to move forward and is looking much more at feeding the bugs you have rather than trying to dump a bunch of new ones in there, which doesn't work. The other aspect that people are confused about is that there are foods that tend to cause inflammation in your gut, and no one knows what that really means. Yeah, it's a very broad question that you're asking, but one of the possibilities is if you're eating foods that feed bacteria that cause inflammatory products, then your inflammation will go up, and vice versa. If you're eating more foods that don't feed bugs that produce inflammatory compounds, instead feeding their competition, then you would expect inflammation to go down. That's really what prebiotics are all about. I mentioned probiotics before, so just to be clear, probiotics are live bacteria, or hopefully live bacteria when you take them, that are theoretically good for you. Prebiotics are feeding probiotics. That is, they're food molecules, largely different types of small carbohydrate fibers that will feed the bugs that are already inside you that have helpful properties. I guess the question is really, are there foods that are not feeding the bacteria and that's why it's causing inflammation in your body? I mean, do all foods you eat have to be feeding your gut bacteria? No. I'd say the majority of your calories are feeding you. That is, they're helping you make cells and you know keep yourself healthy, etc. But there is a subset of the food molecules that you eat that have prebiotic properties. And by prebiotic properties, I simply mean that when you eat them, the fibers in those foods don't digest in your gastrointestinal system because you don't have the enzymes to do it, but your bacterial partners in the gastrointestinal system do have the enzymes and they break them down. That helps those bacteria to do better. They produce compounds that help keep us healthy. To clarify, probiotics is to increase the diversity of microbes in your system or in your gut and prebiotics to feed those microbes. Yes and no. So the probiotic side, the goal has always been with probiotics to increase the numbers of good bacteria inside you. But as I mentioned before, the science is very clear. That does not happen. I mean, there have been hundreds of studies on that. Nobody has ever shown that by taking oral probiotics in a population of people that you will then change their microbiome on an ongoing basis. Why is there so much probiotics that's being promoted now then? Well, if you will, old science dies hard. Probiotics have been around in about 20 years. Prebiotics have been studied for about 20 years, but really haven't been in the mainstream until the last four, five, six years. I think you're going to hear over time less about probiotics, and I think you're going to hear more about prebiotics. Are most people lacking in prebiotics or probiotics or both? Most of the experts, me included, believe that you have bacteria inside you that can help keep you healthy. The problem is we're not feeding them. Most people are, are missing one or more types of prebiotics. I personally don't think probiotics do much of anything. Certainly, they don't increase numbers of bacteria inside you. If they're helping you at all, they've got to be doing it some other way because they're mostly dead bacteria. And I personally can't see how that could help. Here's the confusion. When I was growing up, when people took antibiotics, you just took antibiotics. Now they tell you to take probiotics with your antibiotics, but you're saying it wouldn't make a difference if you did that? That's correct. That is, again, it's a good thought, and it's based on the science over the last 20 years, what we thought probiotics could do. 
that guidance is still out there, I mean, including doctors. But I think the pendulum is shifting towards prebiotics. I now, when I put somebody on antibiotics, I now have them take one or more prebiotics, preferably before the antibiotics even start. Or if today I've diagnosed tonsillitis and you need antibiotics today, make sure that you start some prebiotics and then you continue them for about a month after the antibiotics. The idea being to give the good bacteria all the food and the nutrition it needs to keep up while the antibiotic is killing a bunch of bacteria. And then when you stop the antibiotics, that you have food to have a rebound in good bacteria. That's really interesting because I'm seeing probiotics and chips, juices, yogurt, and then now they have live ones in the refrigerator section of markets. You're saying none of that makes a difference. All I can say is the science that's been done, which includes hundreds of studies, has never shown any kind of probiotic to cause an ongoing change in the bacteria in the gastrointestinal system. I won't go as strong as saying they do nothing, because I don't know that for a fact, but they certainly don't work by increasing the numbers of bacteria in your colon. And by the way, there's a very good reason why that's true. With the exception of the refrigerated ones that you mentioned, that is, at the manufacturer, they're refrigerated. Throughout the transportation process, they're refrigerated. At the store, they're refrigerated. You buy them and you keep them refrigerated. Those might have some live bacteria, but that's not the vast majority of probiotics. Most probiotics are manufactured, shipped on a truck, sent to the store. From the time they're manufactured, when the bugs are alive, to the time you consume them, it's months. And needless to say, if you don't feed bacteria for months at a time, they die. It's just like any other animal. If you don't feed your dog for a month, dog's probably going to die. It's interesting because I think prebiotics is only coming up as a topic of how to improve your health. So it seems relatively new. The science is not new, but the common understanding among people is definitely new. And my personal feeling is the reason for that is everybody was very excited about probiotics. That is, it seems like a very simple concept. Increase the numbers of bacteria by taking them. And so we've been on that bandwagon for 20 years. Even though the science of prebiotics has been building in the background, really didn't come to the fore until it was really pretty conclusive in the literature that you can't increase numbers of bacteria by taking them orally as probiotics. You've got to do something else. That's where the science of prebiotics comes in, where there's lots of evidence that you can actively change the bacteria inside you by taking the prebiotics. So this part is what I was trying to understand, which is I've seen probiotics for the brain, probiotics for the mood. It's implying that different strands of bacteria play a different role in your body. Is that the case? Like if you know which strand to optimize, then you can optimize for your mood, for your brain, and so forth? Not really, is the quick answer. The slightly longer answer is There is evidence that different bacteria affect different parts of us. There's growing evidence that the what's called the gut-brain axis, that is the connection between the bacteria in the gut and the brain, there's an intimate connection there. And people who have certain conditions, say depression, often will show a change in the microbiome in the gut. And in animal models, when you move that around, that is you change the bacteria in the gut, the depression in the animal improves. So the theory is sound because based on sound evidence, but the idea that you can impact that by taking oral probiotics, there's no evidence. So is it then the improvement of the overall 
microbiome versus improving certain strands. Let's say if you want to prevent Alzheimer's, do you improve the entire microbiome or are there certain strands that's tied to the brain, let's say? Presumably, it's certain strains of bacteria that need to change. And I say presumably because this is an area of active research. I can't give you definitive answers for which bacteria you need to increase right now, but I expect over the next five, 10 years, we're going to have a lot of those those answers. And in fact, what we're working on at Isotrive is that exactly, learning what conditions seem to be lacking, what kind of bacterial activity, what genes are in those bacteria, what they can eat, and then feed them. The strategy is to just improve the health of it overall, and hopefully it just helps you across the board. Well, we actually think we can be targeted about this. The current compound that we produce, which is also called isopride, seems to be very effective at reducing or eliminating heartburn as well as constipation. I don't know that it'll affect depression, for instance. We may need a different food molecule, something else that different bacteria eat. Very active research for us and for others. You're referring to the prebiotics that you're focused on on the pharmaceutical side? When I say the word prebiotics, I'm talking about all molecules that have been shown to be able to increase populations of bacteria that are thought to be helpful. It definitely wouldn't increase the bad bacteria as well? Only the good? That's correct. Yeah, all the, all the science we have right now suggests that prebiotics will increase. In fact, it's part of the definition of prebiotics is a molecule that feeds bugs that help keep you healthy. How does prebiotics tie to metabolism, obesity? You were saying conditions like constipation or heartburn. What is it doing that's going to help these conditions that you have mentioned? In the case of, uh, say, heartburn, we know from the scientific studies that the populations of bacteria around the esophagus have changed, and they have many more bacteria that produce inflammatory compounds, which causes inflammation, which causes ulceration of the esophagus. It also loosens the sphincter, the muscle between the esophagus and the stomach, so when the stomach contracts, stuff refluxes back up into the esophagus. It's very clear from the literature that bacteria play a role in there. And what we think Isothrive is doing is feeding other bacteria that now outcompete the bad bacteria, and that's the reason that the heartburn goes away. We think that kind of mechanism, that is one bacteria or a group of bacteria outcompeting a different bad group of bacteria, is true in many diseases. Why does it help in weight control? With weight... First, weight control is, is a big subject. To just try and simplify, people are overweight for a combination of reasons. One is eating too much. One is metabolism. And bacteria have been shown to be implicated in both those areas. There are bacteria that if you have them in you, you will be hungrier. And if you have less of them, you will be less hungry. Same thing with metabolism. If you have certain populations of bacteria, your metabolism will be lower, change those bacterial populations, and the weight situation improves. Now, one thing to mention, that's mostly in animal studies. The human studies are just now going on, so it's still early to be 100% sure about weight loss, but it certainly seems like prebiotics should be able to help that. Could use prebiotics to increase your metabolism and control your weight once it's proven that it can also take place in humans as well as animals? There is suggestions in the literature right now that what you just said is true. The one part I can tell you is we know that prebiotics like isothrive feed bugs that help to regulate appetite. So appetite should go down. The metabolism side is still a little bit of an open question and requires some more research to be 
sure that we're affecting that as well. I'm going to head down the path of ice or thrive later in the conversation. As I understand it, as you age, your gut, the bacteria inside becomes less diverse and the beneficial microbes decrease. Is there something we can do about this? I mean, it's going to affect our health, right? Yes. The answer to your question is, well, it's complicated, but I'll, I'll try and simplify. We know that over the course of time, the bacteria inside you change. As a baby, they're different from, as a young child, they're different from adult, and then they're different again as you, as you age. However, remember that most of the studies are going on in Western society. It is entirely possible that those changes are because of the diet, the same diet that produces hypertension and depression and, and heartburn and constipation. If we adults have a better diet with a lot more prebiotics and we continue that into old age, very possible that the decrease in, in bacteria, decrease in diversity will resolve. Do you think it's because older people are eating differently and eating less as they get older? It's two things. And actually, I should clarify something in that all prebiotics are not the same. So when I say prebiotics, I'm really talking about the whole class. But there are, to make a simple division, there are plant-based prebiotics, that is, those fiber molecules that you get in plants, and there's fermented prebiotics, that is, fiber products that were produced as part of historical fermentation processes. Right now, there's only one available, and that's isothrive. That is, it's the only fermented one. And the reason we think that's important is, as we're talking about now, diets have changed. They've changed a lot in the last two, three hundred years. But before that, everybody ate a lot of fermented foods. And in particular, sourdough, traditionally fermented sourdough bread, using heirloom wheat, that is the type of wheat that our ancestors had, but that's no longer grown. If you make fermented sourdough bread using heirloom wheat, you produce isopar. We've proven that in the lab. That is, that was a normal part of the diet for our ancestors. That's one of the reasons we, we decided to form a company to explore all this, is that type of prebiotic is completely missing in almost everybody's diet. The plant-based prebiotics, if you have a good diet and it's heavy in plants, you may very well be getting enough of the plant-based prebiotics, but unless you're fermenting your own traditional sourdough bread and doing it with heirloom wheat, you're not getting any isopropyl. So if we eat enough fermented food each day, we're creating natural prebiotics for our body. The bad news about that statement is fermented foods today are very different from your ancestors' fermented foods. For instance, sourdough bread today is no longer made using fermentation. From an industrial standpoint, it's too complex a process. It's too messy. So today we produce sourdough bread, tastes the same as traditional sourdough bread, but it's totally different in nutritional content, including lacking prebiotics. Most fermented foods that you eat today, unless you're making them yourself, probably don't have much in the way of prebiotic content. Like I said, if you made your own traditionally fermented sourdough bread using heirloom wheat, then yes, it would have prebiotics. But what about like pickles and kimchi? I see it more in like maybe Japanese food or Asian food where yep. a lot of it's fermented. The only thing I can think of is maybe cabbage or... I can name some. that There's kimchi, there's kombucha. Though I'm blanking, there's a milk product that's a lot like kombucha. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. But again, made under traditional settings, might have had prebiotics. But today they're made in a much more commercial industrial process. 
And so whether or not they're prebiotics or not, hard to say. And from the testing we've done on fermented food products, it doesn't seem to be much in the way of prebiotic content for traditionally fermented foods done in an industrial process. I had read that people would depress immune function from, let's say, late-stage cancer should not be taking probiotics. Is that true for prebiotics? And why is it that there are people who should not be taking pre- or probiotics? The danger of probiotics in somebody who's immunosuppressed is a small percentage of what you're taking in the mouth might actually be live bacteria. The majority of them were probably dead because they sat on the shelf for several months. But even 1% or half a percent of live bacteria in a person whose immune system is not functioning appropriately could be dangerous. Prebiotics, on the other hand, totally different. That is, you're only feeding the bugs that are already in there in the immunosuppressed patient. From a theoretical standpoint, that's not risky. And certainly there's never been any studies that have shown that that's a problem, like with probiotics. Do you think there are potential long-term issues with either? Yeah, probiotics, I think, are not, if you will, not necessary. Better to feed the bugs that are already inside you. The long-term implication of prebiotics is health. That is, feeding those bugs on an ongoing basis. I use the analogy again of your dog. That is, you love your dog, you want your dog to do well, so when you eat, you feed your dog. Every day you eat, and every day your dog eats. The same thing with the microbiome. If you feed them all the time, they stay healthy, and they help keep you healthy, just like your dog stays healthy, and he makes you happy. You created IsoThrive, which is a prebiotic, and then you also have a pharmaceutical side. Can you talk about why you created it and how your science works? So far, there's, if you will, only one product, IsoThrive. We are studying it as a pharmaceutical because the FDA requires that. That is, if we think we can actually treat a disease like gastroesophageal reflux or like irritable bowel, in order to say that, we have to be a drug. So you got to go through the drug approval process. But the molecule is the same. It's the same as in the dietary supplement that's over the counter today. And regardless of whether or not it's pharmaceutical or not, it has the same health implications. To answer your first part of your question, why did we do this? Quite frankly, it was about seven, eight years ago at Louisiana State University where they invented the process. And we subsequently found out about it, had meetings with them, and decided to license the rights and be able to produce it commercially. And that's mainly because we think it's potentially revolutionary. It's a food molecule that your ancestors ate in great quantities and is now completely missing over the last, call it 200 years. And over the last 200 years, Western society diseases have exploded. Cancer, heart disease, depression, gastroesophageal reflux, autoimmune disease. I personally don't think that's a coincidence. And I think we you know, chance of being able to impact a lot of those diseases by proper feeding of bacteria. We're talking about the prebiotic that's been created. Correct. On the, it's a fermented version of what we have eaten in, in the olden days. Is that the best way to describe it? That's the best way to describe it. I like to think of it as traditionally fermented sourdough bread using heirloom wheat. Just take out all the carbohydrates and all you're left with is the prebiotic. That's what we do. I had one. It tastes so much better than the, than the sourdough bread. It tastes really sweet, almost like uh, nectar. Yes. It doesn't taste like a fermented food. That's the good news. A lot of people don't like that vinegary taste. But the vinegary taste is part of the fermentation that we clean up. We have a very precise, sterile process for introducing the right bacteria into fermentation with the right sugars 
to allow it to produce isothrive, and then we remove anything that's not useful, including things like cetic acid or other acids that give vinegar or pickled foods their taste. That's sour taste. Correct. The compounds in isothrive just happen to be naturally sweet. They're not sugar, and they're not a sugar substitute like aspartame. They're their own molecules, but they stimulate the tongue's sugar receptor. I thought that was interesting. Nothing close to that sour aspect, or I want to yep. say even what probiotics typically taste like. What's going on the pharmaceutical side? It looks like you're doing some kind of disease targeting. Yep. The two areas that we're currently investing, actually three areas, but two main ones. One is gastroesophageal reflux. With our dietary supplement, we know that heartburn improves in many, 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 many people, very high percentage, call it maybe 70% of people who start taking isothrive for heartburn have an improvement. We think we're treating gastroesophageal reflux disease, the disease of heartburn, but we can't actually say that until we study it, and we can't actually say that and study it until we go through the FDA process. So that's where the pharmaceutical side comes in. We're doing all the science and working through the FDA to prove that we treat a disease, after which we'll be able to actually say we treat a disease. Same thing's happening with constipation and irritable bowel. And then we're also in the early stages of testing isoprive as a potential cancer preventive. Yeah, right now, all this research is going on with the current isoprive that's a dietary supplement in the marketplace. Well, thank you for sharing your expertise and joining me on Spark today, Dr. Swan. You're welcome. It's my pleasure.